Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. This is episode number 16. We're your hosts. I'm Kate Norris. And I'm Thomas Craft. Whether you're pitching your business, speaking at a work meeting or on the stage, we're here to help you present with clarity and confidence. Today we're doing a speech breakdown of a keynote by Phil M. Jones all about exactly what to say. Welcome to the podcast. Today we're doing another speech breakdown and I'm a little bit excited because I love this speaker. It's Phil M. Jones. Uh, He's a guy who deals with sales and this presentation is his exactly what to say keynote that he presents at conferences and companies all around the world. So we're going to break down his speech. We know that one of the best ways to become a good public speaker is to listen to other speakers and think about what works for them, what doesn't work, ideas you can borrow and the what and why behind it. So we're going to play Phil's uh, speech today and we're going to pause it a few moments and make comment about what's going on. And then at the end, we'll have a little bit of a discussion as usual. So purely coincidentally, this is Phil Jones when he was in Brisbane um, and he's presenting to Volkswagen. I believe it's like dealerships and franchises and my belief is their sales team, which you'll probably pick up from their speech itself. So as we hit play on this presentation, the first thing I want you to listen out for is the introduction that's given by the MC. It's a voiceover and I think you'll agree it does a really good job of introducing him within the context of what he's about to talk about. So have a listen out for that one. So Phil has most likely provided this introduction and it's a really great way of getting your credentials and kind of the really great things about what you've done or or your track record without you kind of having to stand up there and say it yourself because especially in Australia we don't love when people talk about how great they are. So this is a really neat way of doing it. So this is Phil M. Jones, exactly what to say at Volkswagen here in Brisbane in 2019. He's the youngest ever recipient of the British Excellence in Sales and Marketing Award. And to date, he's reached over 2 million people in 57 countries. The best-selling author of Exactly What to Say, Exactly How to Sell, and Exactly Where to Start, you'll know exactly how to welcome him to stage. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Phil M. Jones. Ladies and gents, good morning. Most of my work is um, operating in and around the area of sales and salesmanship. Show of hands in this room, who said when they were a kid, when I grow up, what I'd like to be as a salesperson? Just the two of you. Figured as much. I want you to have some fun with me for a second. Throw some words at me, some adjectives, some describing words that would describe a stereotypical salesperson. Dodgy, hit me with it. It can be as mean as we like. Keep going. Pushy? Arrogant. What else? A liar, you mean, right? Woo! Uninterested. See, when I ask of you to think about a stereotypical salesperson, that's the image that you see in your mind's eye. They're the words that you reach for. Now I ask another question. How would you feel if somebody used those words to describe you or somebody saw that image in you when they saw you for the very first time? How would that make you feel? You're like, ugh, get it off me. Yuck. What if by alternative, though, I don't ask you to reach for words that describe a stereotypical salesperson... What if by alternative I ask you to reach for words that describe a professional salesperson? How do the adjectives now change? Helpful. Say again, empathetic. Honest now and trustworthy. We were a liar a second ago. What else? Knowledgeable. 
Isn't it funny though, right? Is if somebody used those words to describe you, somebody saw that in you when they saw you for the very first time, that that would make you feel remarkably different? See, quite often it's not selling that's the bad thing, it's what people think about salespeople. What people think about the salespeople in your locations is quite often that very first set of adjectives. What I've learned to be true though is I promise you that if somebody ever says the words to you, that you are a great salesperson, that, my friends, is not a compliment. It means you've been caught trying to sell something to somebody. That's the difference. What else is interesting in that short exercise is this. I changed one word, and you changed all of the words. So let's talk about audience interaction. He walked out on stage and really quickly asked for some audience interaction. There was the, hey, how are you? And then he moved into those two questions around describe a typical salesperson and describe a professional salesperson and started getting answers from the audience. So there's a little bit of danger I saw here, but I also really like what he's done. So the danger is your audience will only interact sort of as much as they trust you, as much as they like you. So doing it really early in the presentation can be fraught. Because you've got to earn that from them first, hey? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the danger of having audience participation really, really early in your presentation. However, the clever thing he's done here is he's asked those questions, and I'm sure everybody in the world has an idea of what a stereotypical salesperson is and a professional, especially these people who are in the sales industry. Not everybody in the audience is going to shout out, of course, right? He's not asking for people to come up with comments or thoughts or turn to the person that left. It's really simple, just shout out a word. So while most people in the audience may not want to do that, those few sort of excited people will. The extroverts, yeah. the ones who, who want their voice to be heard, that are happy to, to yell out their opinions. Yeah, and there's probably this huge list of words that could come up, and he only needs a few of the most common ones to come up. And I think he could be pretty uh, reassured that those words, um, some subset of them, is going to come up. So potentially a dangerous manoeuvre if you're really unsure of your audience and that type of thing, but uh, he's done it very cleverly in this instance, asking for quite a low level of audience interaction, but enough interaction that audience feels like they've contributed a little way into the the direction that this talk is going to take. And the other thing that he does in this is set up his entire talk. So he talks about exactly what to say. And from that introduction, to me, it sounds like he's going to be talking about the power of words. Mm. And exactly what he said is, I've changed one word and you've changed all of your words, which sets everything up of words are important. And it's not me saying this. You've actually given me the answer to this. So he's already kind of setting them up like, well, you already believe this. And you changed all of the words. Why don't I ask some questions of you folks that are questions that are asked in everyday life? Because the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment when you're saying it, yes? So why don't I pick on people that avoid eye contact? That's my favourite thing to be able to do down here. Ooh, all right, this is, this is interesting. He's just done two clever things. The first is he's talking about these everyday interactions that we're about to have. He's actually jumped off the stage, down onto the floor where the audience is. He um, is now able to speak with the audience, collapse that divide between the presenter up on stage and the audience down on the floor. Um, I expect he's probably now going to go around and interact with the audience a little bit more. But it's also just a little bit different. Not everybody jumps off stage, so it's again, it's, it's that little bit of contrast. And that comment he made was exceptionally clever. I like to pick on people who avoid eye contact. I guarantee that's a very carefully crafted phrase. 
As a presenter, you want everybody's attention, right? You want people to be looking at you. And so rather than call it out and say, hey, everybody look at me, he's discouraging people not looking at him because if I don't look at him, he might come to me uh, and I'll have to interact even more. So it's a clever way of calling out to give him that attention or he's going to come and talk to you. And so I think it's just a clever way of addressing that he wants your attention and to look at him and to, to listen to what's about to be said because it's probably going to be important. It's kind of that classic reverse psychology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's my favourite thing to be able to do down here. Questions that create conversations. What about a question that's asked almost every day? Let's just see how we do with this one. So your name is? Justin. Justin, how are you? Good, thanks. Good, thanks. Period. Done. Check it. See, Justin is level one experienced a conversation with this simple process. He's like, I know this one. I'm great. Done. Efficient. Let's try somebody else. See if I can get somebody to level two. Your, so your name is? Peter. Peter. Um, hey, how are you? I'm good. Very well. Ah, see, you got level two. He says, how are you going? I'm good too. Done. We survived. How often does that happen? That's the entire exchange. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good too. Done. Again, a little bit more set up here of his talk. These everyday conversations. Hey, how are you? He's going and asking that, and I think he's implied that there is something inherently wrong with this conversation, even though I imagine most of us probably don't see anything particularly wrong with it. So now we've, we've created this big question in the audience's mind around, so what's wrong with being polite and asking how people's day is going? So again, just a little bit more set up, a little bit more creating questions and doubt in the audience's mind so that he can start to answer those questions as we move through the talk. I'm good too. Done. What do conversations need? Open-ended questions, they need to bounce. Anybody seen a good game of tennis? What made a good game of tennis a good game of tennis? Rally. It was the rally, right? It was the, it went. <laughs> Yay, right? That's what we like. <sighs> All right. <laughs> I just find this just a little bit cringy because he's kind of acted out this just with his hand kind of going back and forward while he's going. And I just find it really cringy. Like, do you have to act it out? I think there's an element of like, it's almost, uh, it's almost like a pantomime. You know, uh, sometimes you get somebody on stage who's like, and now I'm walking down the stairs and you get the action with it. And it's like, I know what it looks like, dude. Maybe this just needed to be a little bit shorter. I think, I think the issue is it loses the sense of authenticity. It doesn't sound like he's just... Oh, talking just making a noise yeah. and interact yeah. it's it feels acted feels more prepared yeah i mean if it were me i would say maybe just make that shorter go back and forth three times done move on yeah. we know what a tennis game looks and sounds like mm. yeah that's what we like same in our conversations we like them to go backwards and forwards backwards and forwards backwards and forwards yet quite often what happens is we have efficient conversation as opposed to effective conversation let me give you another giant mistake that often happens. Giant mistake. Um, you, sir, tell me about the last place you went on your vacations. Tasmania. Tasmania. I've never been to Tasmania. I've spent place, uh, well, I've been to Australia, I've been to New Zealand, I've been to South Africa, but I've never been to Tasmania. I mean, um, well, I've, oh, 57 countries I've been in, in fact. Did I tell you I'm a professional speaker? I've been all around the world. I've written five best-selling books, and I'm, uh, I'm freaking awesome. I was getting that. Yeah. See, how does it feel to be on the receiving end of that type of conversation? No thanks, right? No thanks at all. So your name once more time? John. John, tell me about the last place you went on your vacation. Tasmania. Tasmania, cool. Whereabouts is that? Down below Victoria, southern part of Australia. 
oh, oh, I don't know Australia that well. I've been to Sydney maybe a couple of times, but what's some of the fun stuff to do down in Tasmania? Oh, lots of hiking, lots of very pretty states. Yeah? Yeah, it's good. What's some of the prettiest spots? Cradle Mountain. Cradle Cradle Mountain, those, you say those places, I don't know those places. Yeah? yeah. Who did you travel down with? I went down with my son and his girlfriend. Oh, fantastic. Two weeks, it was great. Son, wife and, his, and, and girlfriend? Mm. Awesome. So this is me and John in a forced scenario. There's 450 sets of ears listening in. It's a little forced, it's tough. What if me and you were just enjoying a beer? Do you think I'd learn more about Tasmania? Do you think I'd learn more about your family and the situation with your son and his girlfriend and we'll have a fun time? See, what would happen is I'd get a few levels of questioning in and John would start to think, um, this is fun. A great advantage of jumping down off the stage and having this actual conversation with people in the audience and now we're chatting to John. It could be really easy to stand on stage and sort of act out a conversation with somebody, but to jump down into the audience and grab one of us, one of the audience, and have this real interaction that proves the point, I think has so much more authenticity, is so much more relatable to the audience. And I really like that he's picked the topic of travel. I think we've all had a conversation with somebody where they say, hey, I've been to Tasmania, and next thing we get to hear all about that one time they went. And so he's rattling off, and so Phil's rattling off things that he believes and things that he's experienced, because that's what really happens in the world, I think, that people talk about their real experiences. So again, it's just quite authentic, and we've seen the two examples of a poor conversation um, where he talks about himself, and then that, that better conversation where we uh, focus a little bit more on John. I really liked this particular example. Do you know, I, I have an issue with it just because I think like he's trying to set up a demonstration conversation, but he's actually using his own real example of like, I've been to 57 countries and I'm awesome. Those things are actually kind of true. And maybe it's me doing the tall poppy thing, but I just <laughs> kind of want, I just want him to say, oh, I haven't been to Tasmania, but I've been to Japan and it was really great. And we did this and we did this and we did this, which still demonstrates the same point, but it isn't like his true to life because like 57 countries, like that's pretty impressive. It actually is one-upping. I would like the one-upping to be fictitious rather than an actual real example of himself, I think. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, that didn't bother me. Like I said, I quite liked it. Yeah. This is fun. Tell me about your favourite subject, John. What's your favourite subject? Sport. No, it's not. Here's what your favourite subject is. Remember the school photo? What was the first face you looked for? See, if you are your favourite subject, what do you think every one of your customers' favourite subject is? Themselves is easy. Oh, wow. How confident do you have to be in your answer where you ask the audience for their answer and then turn around and say, no, it isn't. Yeah. He needs to know with over 100% certainty that the answer he has is going to be 100% correct in 100% of the audience's minds. But then the clever thing he does, which follows that up is he doesn't give the answer. He makes people answer it in their own mind by saying, who was the first person you looked for in your school photo? So he's told us that he's wrong and then hasn't given us that definitive answer. He's let us answer it in our own mind, which again has us convincing ourselves of the answer. It's a really bold maneuver, but it's very clever as well. And I like how he's done it. Themselves is easy. See, there was a big difference between conversation one and conversation two. The similarity was, though, is how many questions did I prepare? One. Where did the rest of my questions come from? From John's answers, which meant I had to do what? Had to listen. 
See, if you want somebody to consider something and you want to invite them to consider it in a completely rejection-free fashion, instead of asking them if they're interested, what I would do is I'd use these words. The words I would use are the words, I'm not sure if it's for you. See, if I preface an idea to somebody with the words, I'm not sure if it's for you, what does the little voice do? It does two things. Here's what happens. If I preface an idea with the words, I'm not sure if it's for you, little voice does this first of all. First of all, it says, um, well, I'll be the judge of that. What's the second thing it does? Curiosity is piqued. What is it? Right? I now need to know what the thing is. I'm not sure if it's for you. But there's a three-letter word on the end of this sequence here. A three-letter word that holds all power should be avoided from almost every conversation. That three-letter word, but... See, what does but do in almost every conversation? I'm wondering whether you've ever been in a conversation maybe with a coworker. Perhaps they were giving you some feedback. Maybe they were saying something like, look, I really value your experience and your energy. I know you're trying your best here with what it is that we're working on, but what do you remember? The but and then everything that follows it. What but does is it negates what was said prior. See, when you say to somebody, I'm not sure if it's for you, but... Little voice hears, you probably want to look at this. Hey, I'm not sure if it's for you, but we have a new vehicle coming out in around 12 months' time that could change the game in compact SUVs. I wonder how many polo drivers right now that are thinking about what happens next when their family gets a little bit bigger. How many are sat there right now thinking, what should we get next when the family grows up a touch? Could you plant ideas in your existing customers' heads by saying, I'm not sure if it's for you, but we have some fantastic new compact SUVs coming out in the next 12 months? Easy to do, easy not to do. What I really like about this, he's got behind him a slide and it just has kind of a generic faded picture, but it has the phrase, I'm not sure it's for you, but, which is the entire conversation that he's having at the moment. And, yeah. it, and it really frames it nicely and kind of keeps the focus on that phrase and keeps that conversation kind of a little bit tight. Yeah, I noticed each time he has a section, he just has the key phrase up on the slide, simple. It's a really good demonstration of how words can work on a PowerPoint. So you can often hear that you shouldn't have any words on a PowerPoint slide. But what Phil Jones has done is he's subscribed to the headline theory, which is uh, you try and condense the big idea that you've got down into a single headline, just a couple of words. And so what he's done is he's just put up the single key phrase that he's talking about here and now on the screen so that you could see it just as he's talking about it. Um, but it's certainly not distracting in any way. It's adding to his presentation. Easy not to do. What would happen if you just trained every one of your service personnel to deliver that sequence of words to plant an idea in somebody's head that grows over a period of time that then almost guarantees a test drive in 8, 10, 12 months from now? I'm not sure if it's for you, but... Hey, I'm not sure if it's for you, but we have some fantastic low price finance that means that you could get into something a little bigger. Hey, I'm not sure if it's for you, but have you ever considered maybe moving into the seven-seater vehicle? Hey, I'm not sure if it's for you, but what do you know about the differences between us and the Hyundai? See how it gets you into a conversation that sometimes otherwise could have been harder? Let me give you another rejection-free opening formula. Show of hands in this room who sees themselves as open-minded. Take a look around, people. See, what we got is somewhere like more than half the room with their hands up. I'm pretty sure the other people... They wouldn't have raised their hands regardless of what I asked. Even if I offered cake, beer, any of those things, still no hands. See, show of hands for all the people who never show their hands when somebody asks you to show your hands. 
Some of you are like, I ain't doing that. No one's going to tell me what to do. Uh, interesting thing he's just done here. He knew not everybody was going to put up their hand for that question, which is fine. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he ideally wanted everybody to put up their hand, but then he called it out and said not everybody put up their hand, which I appreciate. But then that bit sort of went on a little bit long. If he offered cake and beer and, you know, hands up, he wouldn't put their hands up and whatever. I think that bit just kind of went on a little bit too long and it felt to me a little bit like almost blaming the audience or picking on the audience. Uh, it just, I think it just felt unnecessarily long and shortened that little bit up and continue on with the great content. Oh, see, I really liked it. I think it was a little bit of lightness, just a little bit of a pattern break. And as someone who kind of always put up my hand, I'm just like, yeah, those people, they'll never put up their hand. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to tell me what to do. See, the whole world likes to see themselves as open-minded. Why? Because what's the alternative? It's not even really closed-minded. Have you ever admitted to being closed-minded? I mean, to admit to being closed-minded would be pretty ridiculous. Look how we can use that fact in our conversations. You want to get people to consider your point of view more often? All we're going to do is we're going to insert the fact that almost everybody likes to see themselves as open-minded into the form of a question. Hey, how open-minded would you be to taking the new vehicle for a test drive? How open-minded would you be to sitting down just to show you how affordable this could be as a monthly payment? Hey, how open-minded would you be to maybe putting all your servicing into the deal up front so you didn't have any hidden costs? How open-minded would you be to understanding more about our safety features and how they compare versus your existing product offering? How open-minded would you be to using the how open-minded preface with people in your dealerships? Easy? See, what I love right now is like three, four, five, six, seven of you are like, yoink, I'm having that. Money in words, right? Can make a massive difference. One of the things that I did in the past is I was invited in to be able to help one of the largest independent furniture retail businesses in the UK. They wanted me to help their sales team better overcome the objections that were faced and help grow the revenues of the store, growing average basket size. I said, though, boss, wouldn't it make more sense that instead of me trying to overcome the objection, we just prevent the objection from coming in the first place? He said, I've got no idea what you mean, Phil. I said, well, think of it this way. Instead of trying to put out the fire, what if what I can do is I can find the guy who was going to light the fire and I can steal the matchbox from his pocket before he leaves the house? He said, I've still got no idea what you mean. I said, well, let's look at it this way. You're in the world of furniture. What are the two biggest profit drivers that impact upon your business? And I found out them to be fabric protection on couches and footstools, you know, little Ottomans, upholstered boxes that would go alongside. Those two things would drive more profit than often the transaction itself. It was the extras. Familiar with how extras can drive more profit than the core product? Funny, right? Huge similarities. All right, so we're talking to car salesman here, uh, and he brings up this anecdote about selling furniture. And I think it could be really easy to question where the heck the similarities are, right? So why is he talking about furniture and we're talking about cars? But then he immediately ties the two together. He finds that point of uh, similarity, which is that profit is driven a large, in large part by extras. Uh, so it was the fabric protection and the Ottomans for furniture and for cars. I'm sure it's no different optional extras that Volkswagen would throw in. So really good that he's actually explicitly said, here are the similarities, instead of relying on the audience to maybe make the connection. And he's using an analogy which always works really well because people can relate to it. And furniture is something that everyone is kind of familiar with because most people have furniture in their houses. <laughs> I would think I most. I would yeah. think everybody has furniture in their house. Well, let's, well, let's not generalise. <laughs> All right. 
Huge similarities. I said to them, what was the most common objection you get for why somebody didn't want their fabric professionally sealed at the factory? Any idea what the most common objection would be as to what customers would say as to why they didn't want their fabric professionally sealed? They would say, we're dead careful, we don't eat and drink on our furniture. Show of hands in this room who's never had a glass of wine, TV dinner, tray on the lap, never sat down on the couch and eaten. And people say that salespeople are liars. Again, I could see a very clever choice he's made here. So he wants to communicate that everybody has you know, sat in the lounge and eaten. So instead of asking who has done that and you get 70% of hands go up because we heard before that not everybody puts their hand up, he's asked the exact opposite question. Who's never done this? So he's actually guaranteed the response he wants by simply flipping the words at the start of that question. Another example of what he was saying at the start uh, and throughout the whole presentation that words matter, that one word choice can make a big difference. And people say that salespeople are liars? Hmm. My experience is customers aren't always so good at telling the truth. Trouble is, though, is if customer says, I don't eat and drink on my furniture, can I say, well, you should probably have it protected? See, if a customer says something, it must be true, whereas if you say, it might not be. What do you think the most common reason was as to why somebody wouldn't want a footstool? What do you think they might say as their excuse? They'd say, I've not got the space not got the room. Having never seen their room, could I say, well, of course you do. Everybody does. See, if they say they've not got the room, I've got to believe them, right? If a customer says something, it must be true. If I say it, it might not be. Success in selling isn't about making yes sound better. It's about destroying the option of no. So I thought, what if I could just get people to stop saying those common excuses? What would that do to conversion rates? Here's the result that we achieved. We moved average transaction value in stores from around 800 pounds per customer to over 1,500 pounds per customer. That's the result we hit, almost doubling the average transaction value. How did we do it? I wrote intelligent questions. Uh, just two small things here. One is his brilliant use of pause. When he's getting the audience to think, he's giving them time to think. And the other thing is he's building intrigue and he's building stakes. So he's talking about what all the objections are, how can I say this to the, the customer, and then we increase sales from X pounds to Y pounds. So building a lot of intrigue and interest before he starts to deliver any sort of answer. Yeah, so you've got the audience sitting there going, oh God, just tell me what it is. Tell me what I have to say. Yeah, absolutely. I wrote intelligent questions. Here are the questions I wrote. Apart from yourself, who will be using the furniture? What would customers say? They'd say me, the wife, the kids, the dog. I'd follow it with a leading question whilst nodding. I'd say what and a spot of entertaining. What do you think everybody said to the what and a spot of entertaining question? Everybody says, sure. See, nobody admits to having no friends. <laughs> I'd say, is it going in your best room or your everyday room? Do I mind which one they pick? Best room or everyday room? Doesn't matter, does it? Best room needs to continually look at its best. Everyday room's going to take a hammering. I'm in great shape either way. I say, how long did you have your last piece of furniture for? Again, it didn't matter what they answered. Three years, five years, 15 years. I'd follow it by saying, I guess you're looking for this one to last the same time or longer. What did everybody say? Sure. So what I've got is I've got people admitting that they use the furniture for entertaining. They want it to last a long time and it's going in the best room. Am I in good shape to recommend fabric protection? Trouble is, though, I don't like good shape. What Phil Jones likes instead is I like um, certainty. Certainty is my preference over good shape, so I learned one more question. 
prefaced by another set of magic words. I learned that if I could preface something with the words, I bet you're a bit like me. I can get just about anybody to agree to just about anything, providing I'm reasonable. I bet you're a bit like me, enjoy getting home from work, grabbing a beer and sitting down on the couch. Yeah, yeah, that's me. I bet your household's just like mine, never finds time for a proper family meal around the table as a group. More often than not, it's a tray on your lap in front of the box. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's not true to the person, they're like, that's reasonable. Yeah, that could be true. Can they tell me they do not eat and drink on their furniture, having nodded and smiled along to that series of questions? Still got this footstool to deal with though, right? What am I scared they might say? Scared they might say I've not got the room. How do I deal with that? Well, I've got to come straight for it. This best room of yours, how big's the room? Now they tell me. Three by seven, 15 by two, 48 by 11. Didn't matter what they say. I'd say, um, wow, that's a fair size room. How big is a fair size room? It's a fair size, right? A fair size. I've got more chance of getting stolen in a fair size room than me labeling it otherwise. I'd say, um, you're buying a three-seater and a two-seater couch. How are you going to lay it out in the room? They'd try and describe it for me. I'd play dumb. I'd say, can you draw it? Put a piece of paper in front of them. Let's start to draw the room. Do you know what every human being on the planet does other than architects? The room grows and the furniture shrinks. They are creating space for me in the diagram. As they're doing the diagram, I'm asking more questions. I'm saying, when you're entertaining, what do you do for extra chairs? They say, well, there's people on the floor. We're dragging chairs around from other rooms. I say, what about storage? They say, we could always use room for extra storage. Am I in good shape to recommend a footstool? Pretty good shape. But I don't like good shape, do I? What do I prefer? Certainty. So I wrote the best question of my career. There'll be three people in the room that get just how good this question is. The rest of you will miss it. I'm okay with that. I'm going to tell you because it makes me feel happy. Best question I ever wrote came at this precise point in conversation. Christmas time. Where's the tree go? Why would I ask that question? Just found the space for the footstool for 11 months of the year, didn't I? <laughs> what did that power of questioning allow me to do? It allowed me to be able to get to the end of that series of questions and say, because of the fact that you said that you're often entertaining, struggling for extra chairs, for those reasons, what most people do is they have a footstool. Because of the fact that you said that you want this to last a long time, it's going in your best room. What you might want to do is you might want to have your fabric professionally sealed at the factory. Try and tell me that's not a good idea. Here's what it did to conversion rates. Fabric protection used to run at 60%. Where did it rise to? Only 95 Footstools running at 25%, where did it rise to? Only 40%. I tell you that, why? Because it's not everybody. It allowed me to say things like, because of the fact that you're putting this couch in your kid's bedroom and you've got no extra room, you probably don't want a footstool. And they go, you're right, I don't. Because it's done with integrity. So at the start of this presentation, he had those words about a professional salesman, things like empathetic, honest, trustworthy. Mm. And he's just displayed that in this little sequence here where he says that conversion didn't go to 100% and only went to some part of that. Again, just giving some tools around moving from that stereotypical salesperson who's pushy into that professional salesperson. He's really, he's really demonstrating that he practices the words that were given at the start of the presentation. Tying the conclusion back to the introduction. Because it's done with integrity. Why else do I tell you that? Is there's nothing that I'm sharing with you today that works with all of the people all the time. Nothing. Just things that work with more of the people more of the time. And the compound effect is between a good year and a great year. That's the difference. So ladies and gents, I've been Phil Jones. I wish you every piece of success that you're prepared to work for. Thank you very much.
All right, Phil Jones. I have tried to not fangirl too much over what I love about him. (laughs) All right, so two questions that we ask at the end of every presentation. First up, what was the message that you got from that? The message, I think, was quite clear. This is his exactly what to say presentation, and that's what he delivers. Here are the key phrases to use to become a professional salesperson. Yep, basically I had the same thing of just words are very important and powerful and you need to get them right. Yeah, and something that we noticed that uh, Phil Jones has done in this this talk, he talked about that furniture example. He's speaking to car salesmen. I'm sure it doesn't matter which industry he's speaking to. Those key phrases always work. And and that's, that's beautiful that he's been able to provide the value of use these exact words and you'll have a result. But the clever thing for him is it doesn't matter which industry he walks into, he can just add on those couple of examples at the end. So... Um, you know, he referenced Volkswagen specifically. He referenced the size of the cars. You know, he could add on those real examples that made it work for this audience. His understanding of the audience was really well done. So while he can take those key phrases, depending which industry he speaks to, just drops on the back end of uh, what's required for those particular phrases. So, Kate, let's talk about the physical presentation. What did you see with this talk? A very measured presenter. So mm. the last couple of breakdowns that we've done have been um, Tracy Spicer and and was Tina Fey, and we had mentioned that they look very comfortable on stage. They are people who are very used to talking in front of people and being on stage. And Phil absolutely is comfortable, but he is so measured. There is nothing that he does that is without purpose. Yes, I think everything he did on stage, and even when he jumped off the stage, very controlled, very planned. So there's moments there where he's playing with the PowerPoint clicker. He's rotating it very specifically in his hands. And I think at first glance that could have been distracting, but I noticed he was doing it only when in his mind he was sort of considering something or questioning something or giving us time to think. Again, you know, that could be a nervous fiddle for maybe a lesser speaker, but... No, that was so controlled. Totally controlled by him, I think, specifically planned to do at that time. The opposite of authentic is contrived, and they're kind of the two very ends of the spectrum. Authentic is just kind of standing up and speaking your truth, Um, and contrived is kind of acted and... Just overdone. Overdone, and it's really unattractive. And I don't think that Phil was either. He walks a very fine line in the middle where he is controlled and considered, but still he has a really lovely, natural feel to how he speaks So while it's not completely authentic, it is absolutely not contrived. It is professional. Professional is a good word for it. This is definitely a talk I can see. I can see he would give it and does give it over and over and over again in different countries, different conferences and companies and such. Yeah. I think it's quite clear to see why he is paid a lot of money to do this speech. Absolutely. Because everything about it is just kind of pretty bang on, except for those couple of little tiny bits that we discussed in the middle. But otherwise, it's... Yeah, his, great. <laughs> his audience interaction's great. He speaks well. The value and the content is good. His message uh, is clear. Yep, and those couple of PowerPoint slides were um, useful as well. Have we fangirled enough over Phil M. Jones now, Kate? I think we may have. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so thank you very much to listening to this speech breakdown and thanks to Phil M. Jones for his keynote delivered to Volkswagen here in Brisbane in 2019. Thanks for listening to today's show. We'd love for you to leave us a review on iTunes. If you'd like to know more, check out presentationboss.com.au slash podcast, where you'll find the show notes for today with links to everything we've discussed. If you have a speech you'd like us to listen to and break down on the show, flick us the link at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. We're always happy to hear your thoughts or take suggestions for future episodes. 
Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information of this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend. Have a great week. Oh, so when I blow my nose, it gets immortalized. You blow your nose and you hit the pause button. Yeah, no one needs to hear that.